well, about two, two and a half months ago when the preaching schedule for Calvary for the summer months was being put together, we looked ahead and saw that this weekend, next weekend, all of the starting pictures in the rotation were either on vacation or at a youth camp, and so you could reach into the bullpen and find somebody there, and that's where they found me. And so it's good to be back with you both this weekend as well as next weekend. Well, this past Wednesday, another world record was broken. We as a nation passed the 242nd year mark under the same governing document, the Declaration of Independence. That is absolutely astounding. While other nations average a revolution every 20 to 30 years, America continues with amazing stability. Neither our closest allies nor our fiercest enemies has experienced the stability with which we here in America have been favored. What's the secret of America's endurability? Well, the Statue of Liberty in New York's harbor stands as a glorious symbol of freedom and liberty in the world. For decades upon decades upon decades, people from all parts of the world streamed to America's shores in search of a better life for themselves and for their children. My ancestors came through Ellis Island from Norway. I'm guessing that virtually all of us are sons or daughters of those who have come from some other part of the world. And in this land, we know and experience freedom and liberty like no other people on the planet. We are known as a freedom-loving people to the very core of our being. We treasure personal freedom, we treasure spiritual freedom, we treasure economic freedom, and we treasure political freedom. But freedom is not free. Freedoms do not just spring from nowhere. Where have the freedoms that we so treasure in America, where have they sprung from? Where have they come from? But we travel back to the early days of the nation in search of answers to the question. Among the earliest people to set foot on the shores of New, new Land were the Pilgrims and the Puritans. They came with a deep longing and desire for religious freedom. Persecuted in their homeland, they embarked on a dangerous journey to seek out a new start in a new land in which they were free to worship God. We see in this beautiful painting of the pilgrims on board the deck of the speedwell before they embarked on their dangerous journey. The scriptures opened before them. Their eyes lifted heavenward. Their hands opened in prayer. Why did they come? Well, let's listen to the words of the Mayflower Compact of 1620. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, having undertaken for the glories of God and advancement of the Christian faith, a voyage to plant the first colony. 
In their own words, the pilgrims came to preserve and propagate the truth and the liberties of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not narrow. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very broad. The gospel of Jesus Christ is much more than just individual salvation, as central and important, of course, as that is. Transformed by our relationship with Jesus Christ, in turn, all of our other relationships are to be transformed as well, including our relationship with our nation and including our relationship with our government. Where have these freedoms that we enjoy and treasure so deeply, where have they come from? They came from the heart passion of a freedom-seeking people. There is an undeniable passion deep in the human soul for freedom. Jesus and those who have embraced him and followed him have produced the world's greatest freedoms. Christ came into this world to set us free, to set us free from the power of sin, to set us free from the guilt of sin. And this spiritual freedom we treasure. But it is a spiritual reality that has worked itself out into human society by bringing freedoms economically, politically, and socially. The spiritual freedoms that we have in Christ have worked themselves out and shaped the character of the civil institutions and the course of social progress. Although flawed human beings, which they were, and not always consistent in their faith. Our founding fathers thought and lived within a Christian worldview, even those who themselves personally were not Christians. This needs to be stressed strongly in our day and understood because it has been the standard line for the last 100 years that our founding fathers really weren't all that interested in religion at least not the Christian religion, maybe deism, that they paved the way for a secular America and that the Constitution was written for a secular people. That is blatant historic revisionism, which does not stand up under historic scrutiny and which happily in our day is systematically being exposed and rebutted. Protestant Christianity was the predominant conviction of the Founding Fathers. For example, 52 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Orthodox, deeply committed believers. The other four, even they, believed that the Bible contained divine truth in the God of the Bible and in God's intervention in human history. Of the 55 signers of the Constitution, 39 had the equivalent of seminary degrees. You see, even the deists among them operated within a Christian worldview and held to its principles. And that biblical worldview shaped the very foundations of the nation. In 1821, President John Quincy Adams said, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, 
added this, the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. From that foundation, shaped by the biblical worldview, sprang the incredible freedoms that we treasure so deeply. I want to focus on three of those freedoms a bit more carefully today. First of all, the biblical worldview shaped the early educational system of America. Second to the Bible, the best-selling book in the early American colonies was a book called the New England Primer. The New England Primer was used widely in the schools of colonial America, and its reading exercises were couched in biblical language, biblical imagery. William Holmes McGuffey, author of the famous McGuffey Reader. The McGuffey Reader was used over 100 years in the public schools of America, selling over 125 million copies until it was discontinued in 1963. President Lincoln said of McGuffey, he is the schoolmaster of the nation. McGuffey himself wrote, the Christian religion is the religion of our country. From it are derived our notion on the character of God, on the great moral governor of the universe. On its doctrines are founded the peculiarities of our free institutions. From no source has the author drawn more conspicuously than from the sacred scriptures. From all the extracts from the Bible, I make no apology. Of the first 108 universities in America, 106 of them were distinctively Christian. The founding precepts and models of universities such as Harvard and Princeton and Columbia revealed that higher education was based on biblical truths of Christianity. Chartered in 1636, in Harvard's student handbook, rule number one was any incoming student needed to have knowledge of Latin and Greek in order to study the scriptures. In other words, a prerequisite for getting into Harvard was you had to know Latin and Greek in order to study the scriptures. In the founding charter of Princeton University, we have these words, cursed is all learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. In 1782, the U.S. Congress voted this resolution. The Congress of the United States recommends and approves the Holy Bible for use in all schools. Or look to the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which laid down the requirements of any new territory becoming a state. Article 3, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. In other words, if you wanted your territory to become a state, you must have schools in that territory, and those schools must teach religion, morality, and, of course, knowledge. So it is clear from history that the Bible and the Christian faith were foundational in setting forth the educational and the judicial systems of this land. So firstly, the biblical worldview shaped the educational system of America. Secondly, the biblical worldview shaped the form of government that they established. 
the founders were great students of history. Think of John Adams, for example. They studied the ancient literature. And in their study of the ancient literature, the new government which they formed was shaped by two streams of thought, the confluence of which sometimes was harmonious, sometimes was not. The two streams of thought were the Hebrew Scriptures and ancient Greece. The Founding Fathers studied and knew political history all the way back to the Greek city-states which attempted democracy in ancient Greece. And so the idea of democracy came to our Founding Fathers from Greece. At the same time, with their Bibles opened, they understood, as Romans 13 teaches, that the civil magistrate is God's servant. They saw how in the Old Testament, how God began with Moses as the leader, how then he raised up the judges, and then when the people demanded a king, God didn't think it was a very good idea, but he finally gave in to the people. He gave them a king, first Saul, then David. Of course, David was greatly blessed. When the founders then contemplated what form of government that they would establish in the land, they did not find a prescribed form of government in the pages of Scripture and simply lift them out and implement them because there is no prescribed form of government in the Scriptures. But I do believe that they saw that the most important thing was that whoever the ruler was and whatever form the government will take, the ruling agent was to acknowledge God's authority and the state was to be subject to God. Out of this conviction came the great experiment known as America. Never tried before, first in the annals of history, the attempt to establish the first democratic society ever created by free men as a free and individual state. The great words of the Declaration of Independence come ringing into our ears. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The founding fathers and those who followed them believed that the right of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness was a God-given right which was beyond challenge and could not be abridged by the claims of nobility or the divine right of kings. Individual liberty was the essential founding principle of the republic. As such, the constitution which they established would be a democratic form of government, not pure democracy like back in Greece, but a republic, a representative democracy. The founders believe that God is sovereign over both man and government, that man is sovereign over government, and that was a revolutionary idea. The government was responsible to the people. The people are the government. In a free nation, the people are sovereign, and the state is duty-bound to serve the interests of the people was the most unique idea in all the annals of history. A government of the people, by the people, for the people, in Abraham Lincoln's famous phrase. An idea that would be anathema to the ruling classes of Europe, but to our ancestors, it was their driving passion. William Gladstone, four-time 
Prime Minister of England, said of the Constitution, it's the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and purpose of man. These founding fathers had a healthy distrust of the power of centralized government. Why? Because they had a biblical understanding of human nature. They knew that power in the hands of sinful man can grow and grow and grow and endanger the liberties and the freedoms of the people. That's why the full power of centralized government was the very thing they sought to minimize. And they did so in the very way that they set up the government powers. In reading the Old Testament scriptures, they read in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our ruler, the Lord is our king, he will save us. What are the three elements they saw there? The Lord is our judge. There's the judiciary. The Lord is our ruler. There's the legislature. The Lord is our king. There's the executive. Those three elements would be the essential part of the civil magistrate. And that's why we have three separate branches of government. It was a way to divide up the power of government, you see. Each of the branches would have a check on the power of the other. It was a way to limit the power of government. And so secondly, the biblical worldview shaped the kind of government they established. And thirdly and finally today, their biblical worldview established the rule of law. The Greeks have given us our philosophical categories, the Romans have given us our legal categories, and the Hebrews have given us our moral categories. The entire basis of Western law, the laws upon which our laws have been based, rests on a moral code. It rests on the Ten Commandments. Lex Rex, or the Law of the Prince, written in 1644 by the brilliant cleric Samuel Rutherford, called for limited government and constitutionalism. The book was well known to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and had a profound influence on the political systems established by our founding fathers. Americans would live under the rule of law, not under the rule of the king. Freedom would come as the people lived under the rule of just law. John Adams, second president of the United States, said, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled, unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. James Madison, primary author of our Constitution, added, We have staked the whole future of our new nation not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of our political constitutions upon the capacity of each of ourselves to govern ourselves according to the moral principles of the Ten Commandments. We are to govern ourselves individually according to the moral code of the Ten Commandments. That is how we are to love our neighbor. That is how we are to live in civil society with one another. And so born out of a Christian worldview, religious liberty, 
individual freedom, individual responsibility, the rule of law, limited government, and free enterprise all came together on the shores of this land in a combination that literally, literally has changed the world. Now, what does all this have to do to us, for us today? Well, much in every regard, it seems to me. As I've said, freedom is not free. And the price of freedom is eternal vigilance by every new generation. There are forces in our world today, there are forces in our nation today that erode and finally take away the freedoms and the liberties that we so, so cherish. And we who are God's people in this land must stand against them. One of the greatest dangers facing our nation, and especially for the younger generation, which has not had to pay the price of freedom, one of the greatest dangers is that we have never been forced to sacrifice for the liberties we so much enjoy. The exception would be those in the military who, to this day, some of them are giving the ultimate sacrifice. And because of this danger, the liberties that we treasure so deeply can slip away from us because we do not understand the forces that are working against them and what we must do to understand them and stand against them. As the world transitions into a global society, we must be aware that governmental power, no, well, no matter how well-intentioned, that government power can steal away our independence and our freedoms. And so here is the question before us. Will we be passive and compliant as we allow the noose of government to be slipped around our necks? Or will we rise and say, no, beyond this point, we will not go? Here at the beginning of the 21st century, 2018, America stands as an island of freedom in the midst of a seas of socialism. There are serious choices we as a people need to be making. Will we as a people make choices that defend and preserve our freedom, of, our heritage of freedom and independence, or choices that will erode our individual liberty? Will we maintain the balance between government programs and individual liberty? Will we take steps toward a managed economy or support a free enterprise economy? Will we balance our security with freedom and faith? Will we remain an island of freedom and will the rest of the world be able to count on us to lead the way? After our founding fathers unanimously approved the Declaration of Independence and later signed it, a call went out to celebrate. A call went out to fire the cannons, fill the sky with fireworks, ring the bells in celebration. The very first bell that was rung was rung from the belfry of the building in which was crafted the founding documents. And that bell was rung to summon the people to gather for a first public reading 
of these new founding documents. They rang that bell. We know it as the Liberty Bell. Where did the Liberty Bell get its name? From the 4th of July? No. From the Declaration of Independence? No. The name of the Liberty Bell came from the Scriptures. And a particular verse which was later imprinted upon the bell, which came from Leviticus 25, verse 10. This verse. Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. For those of us who have the freedom in Jesus Christ that we have. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ in this land. This is the mission of every believer. To proclaim liberty throughout the land to its inhabitants. So on this 4th of July week. Let's proclaim that liberty in our homes, in our church, in our community, in our state, and in our nation. Let's let freedom ring. Freedom will ring clearer if we who are God's people in this nation will be diligent in doing whatever we can to preserve and protect our civil and religious liberties. What would happen to hope in the world if America were to be lost as an island of freedom? Think about that. Where would the hope in the world be? So we as followers of Christ have an obligation following those who have gone before us to protect the safe harbor of freedom which is our land. For the sake of others in the world, for the sake of our children, and their children. Thank God we have the freedom to raise our voices in selecting the leaders of our country. Thank God we have the right and the privilege of sharing our beliefs and our hopes with other people. And thank God we have a say in passing on to our children a free and solvent nation. Just imagine the impact God's people Christians in this land could have on the direction of government, the character of its leadership, the moral health of the nation, if we were consistent in applying biblical principles and the teachings of Jesus Christ to every aspect of our lives, including our patriotic duty as citizen Christians. That is our calling. That is our challenge. May the Lord give us boldness as we rise to that call and challenge. Let's pray.